Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. Last Lord's Day, Jason had finished taking us through chapter 6. Chapter 6 really began the whole teaching on sanctification, or being conformed to the image of Christ, the basis for our sanctification, uh, the very realities of our sanctification. We are no longer enslaved to sin, but now we've been enslaved to righteousness, and we would seen throughout those passages of Scripture that this is something that God has done to us. We, we were passive in this. He took us from being under the dominion of sin, and he enslaved us to righteousness, making us his own. Last week, we had seen where the apostle then has the Romans to look back and to try to understand what benefit that they were deriving from the things which they are now ashamed, as he says. One of the things that has been emphasized here is that in sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, that our desires have changed, our minds have changed, our emotions have changed, all to desire the things that are good and right and to be ashamed of what was previously done in our life. That is one of the ways in which we can look back and see that God has truly worked within our life, conforming us, changing us, transforming us. Once we were slaves to impurity and wickedness, but God has removed us from the dominion of sin and enslaved us to righteousness. Whereas we once delighted in lawlessness and evil, now we've been freed and we, see we have received our benefit, as he says in verse 22, which is sanctification and the outcome of that is eternal life. We look back and we can see uh, how ashamed that we are of how we once spoke or how we once acted. And we are ashamed and we have those, those emotions because recognizing what God has done and who God is and having our desires changed to line up within the law of God, we see that what we'd done previously was offensive to God. It was sin. It was evil. And we are ashamed because we recognize it was offensive to our great God who saved us, our great God who died for us. The former manner of life resulted in eternal death, as he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ for all who believe. And that's the great news. In our passage today, we're looking at chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And really the focus here is much on the law. When you're looking at just verses 1 through 6, he mentions the law eight times. And throughout chapter 7... Even more. Here, the apostle, you can see his heart. You can see his concern for those that are still within the Roman church who who still might have some doubt. Still perhaps doubting that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He has much to say. And he is going to use a very common illustration uh, for his readers to understand when it comes to the questions that they may have. You know, in what sense is it true that we are not under the law but under grace? What does that mean? In what sense are we free from it? And for what purpose were we freed from the bondage of the law, as he says? And perhaps Paul has in mind those that are still doubting who think that they have to do more in order to be saved or to have 
right standing with God. And these are the ones that he is speaking to. To comfort their hearts, to lift up their hearts once more, and to look unto Christ as the source of their hope, their salvation, their peace, everything. So if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. As we look at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is still living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you are, all that you've done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, comfort our hearts this morning and give us peace knowing that, that our favor with you is not determined by anything that we do, but it's on account of your Son, for his life and his death, his completed work, and not in our own. Father, let us rest in him. Let us recognize, Father, that, that you have delivered us from the curse of the law to live in the newness of the Spirit. Father, thank you so much uh, for the assurance that you give us in your Son. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so here again, the Apostle, anticipating some questions, perhaps he is... You know, expecting that some will still have some concerns about their standing before God and, and still yet maybe have some questions as to what it means that we are not under law but under grace. These are things that he said back in chapter 6. He didn't really elaborate too much on it because his focus was specifically to show that we are not under the dominion of sin. But here he really focuses in on the law. What is the relationship of the believer to the law? Well, you have a variety of views uh, some would put a huge wedge in between the Old Testament and the New and say the law has no bearing on the Christian at all. There's no standard. Uh, the, they even perhaps would look at the Old Testament as, as being a works-based kind of salvation. And that has, never been, that has never been the reality. As we have seen and as we continue to see, especially through the book of Romans, all people for all time, have always been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. No one was ever justified by the works of the law, and Paul has made that very clear. You know, when you think about uh, 
the Old Testament saints. I mean, you think about their relationship with the law. It, you had those that perhaps Paul is addressing here that, that were trying to work their way, trying to keep the law, all of this sort of thing. But then you had others who, from the heart, delighted in the law. They delighted to do the things of the law. They saw the wisdom that was in the law, for it was the expression of the holiness of God. And they seen that because of what God had done in their life, the striving after the keeping of the law, all of that was in order to demonstrate, not to receive, but to demonstrate our love, our devotion unto our great king. That is no different than today. You go to Psalm 119, there are numerous, numerous verses that you could choose from of David saying, Oh, how I love your law, I delight in your law, my tears are running down my face because they don't, etc., etc. You have Jesus even saying in the Gospels when he's asked the question, What is the greatest commandment in the law? What does he say? He says, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, being. That's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And to love your neighbor as yourself. You know what he's quoting? He's quoting Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the relationship that the believer has to the law is not in bondage to the law in that sense. But there's a delight that is there. So it can't be that Paul is getting ready to speak to us and say, well, the law is done away. The law has no bearing. The law has no nothing when it comes to the new life that is in Christ. That's not what he's saying. But he is speaking to those that believe that they can do the things of the law in order to be justified before God. Those are the very ones that he's been talking to thus far within Romans. You cannot do it. By the works of the law, no flesh will be saved. You cannot do A, B, C, and D and think that God is, is showing you even greater favor because you did these things. That's not what the apostle is getting ready to tell us. He's getting ready to tell us you're no longer under the curse of the law. You're no longer under the obligation of the law in the sense that in order to, be, in order to have a right standing with God, if you were trying to keep the works of the law, you would have to do it perfectly. And if you're striving to do that, there's no way that you can, and so the curse of the law is upon you and you're condemned by it. Those are the ones he's speaking to. So here's what he says. This is a very just a basic principle of law. He says, or do you not know, brethren? And notice, notice this. He is speaking to his brethren. He's speaking to believers. This isn't a situation in which he is speaking to the unbeliever. He is speaking to those who are believers. And he is, he, he is pleading with them. Here's what he says. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. This is a very basic principle. You can either take this in the more particular sense as far as the law of God, bound by the law of God as long as you live. You can take it in, a, under, in this kind of an understanding as well that the laws of the land, for example. We live in America. There's laws that we have to obey. And when you die, you're no longer obligated to those laws. When you die, you don't have to obey the traffic signs anymore. Nothing. So there's a sense in which this is just a basic principle. When you die... The law that you are living under, whether it's the law of the country that he has in mind, 
And just speaking generally or it's specifically within the law of God, you're not obligated when you die. You're no longer uh, obligated to, um, to keep it in the sense of uh, it's, it's, it's binding on you. It's a very basic principle. Those obligations cease when you die. While you're alive, you're obligated to those laws. This is just giving a statement of fact on the more legalistic side of things. This is a very familiar principle. I'm bound to keep the law as long as I'm alive. So speaking to them, it has jurisdiction over you. It has control over you. It exercises control over you. But then he goes on to use this illustration then. He, well, he's going to make this statement and then he's going to go to the illustration. For the one who has died, it's no longer bound to him. A statement of fact that he's already establishing, the dominion of sin is broken. He's, here's some things to look at and as far as similarities. When you're looking at his speaking of the law and his speaking of sin and the dominion of sin, there's some very similarities as to what he's referring to here. The dominion of sin is broken by us being united to Christ. Uh, those are things that he said earlier in chapter 6, and this is somewhat of what he's getting at here, what he's going to be bringing to us. Especially taking off on what he said later in Romans 6 as well, that you're not under law, under grace. And now he's elaborating on that. You're free from the obligation to keep the law in order to be right with God. You're free from its curse. You're free from its condemnation. This is what he's getting at. One writer says this, Just as dead people are not tempted to sin, so they are free from the demands of the law. Physical death frees one from the temptation to sin and the authority of the law. Now remember, he's talking to the legalists. He's talking to those that believe that they must do more than what is necessary or what he has already elaborated on in order to be right with God. So here's the illustration in order to bring this about. Illustration of marriage. And he's speaking generally here. He's not going into a big theology of marriage. He's not going to bring up the, the ways in which you can uh, have a biblical divorce, any of those things. He's just speaking very generally here in order to make his point. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. That's a very easy to understand statement. And it is in accordance with the law. The woman is bound by law to her husband. This word for bound is the same one that, that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 12 of binding the strong man. He's, you're, con, you're confined. It has an idea of, of being having this legal or moral tie. You're obligated. These are statement of facts here. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Maybe some wives hope for this. But here's, here's the statement. If while you're married, you are bound to your spouse. You're bound by law. You're bound by God's law. You know, whenever we stand before the, before, uh, the congregation when you're getting married and all of that, what is it? What God has joined together, let no one separate, right? So that's, 
That's the principle. When you're engaged to your spouse, when you're married to your spouse, you are bound to them. And so he goes on to say, you're bound to them while they live, but when they die, there's no law keeping you bound to a dead spouse. You're free. So he says, so then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. It is so binding in the sense that if you have one of the spouses that leaves and goes to live with someone else, that's adultery. That is against the law. That is not permitted whatsoever. However, the same thing is if she were to go divorce her husband, go marry another. That's what it's referring to. But the same situation is counted as permissible if the husband dies and she goes to marry another. She's not an adulteress, even though she's joined to another man. So this is something that the audience is going to recognize. They're going to understand. This is a very easy illustration here. But he's using this to describe their relationship to the law. Here's things that you know. He's speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to his brethren. You know, dear Christians, that while you are living, you are bound to your spouse. If you go outside of the marital boundaries, you're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. However, if your spouse passes away, you're not bound to them. You're no longer obligated to this, this spouse that has now gone on. You're released. And this is, these are statements of fact that he's getting ready to use. The woman is free to marry another. Uh, Lawson, he says, no longer un, he's, they're no longer under obligation to be married to a dead man. So, he makes a general principle of the law having jurisdiction over a person as he lives. He's giving the illustration. Here's what he's meaning. Look at this when it comes to marriage. And now he's driving the point home even more. He says, therefore, therefore, my brethren, again, talking to believers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, one, one writer is, is making this point to say that basically, as long as you are alive and in your unregenerate state, you are in Adam and you are married to the law. You are bound to the law. The law is upon you. You're obligated to it. And it's because of your obligation to the law and your failure to keep the law that the curse of God is upon you. That's what he's getting at. But the great news of what he is saying here, especially in light of everything that he has said thus far, of back in the earlier chapters of being justified by faith alone, that we have a new representative head, which is Christ himself, that we are being sanctified, no longer in sin, under the dominion of sin. We have died to sin. We have died to the old man. We are being raised in the newness of life. We are buried with him in baptism. We're raised with him in the newness of life, as he talks about our old self is crucified with him. That's what he says earlier. And that's the very thing that he's driving home again. My brethren, you were made to die. Made to die to the law. You're the deceased, the, the deceased spouse. That's what he's saying. 
You're the one who died. You were made to die. This is in the passive tense or the passive voice. This is something that was done to you. You were made to die. You were delivered to death is what the word means. It means to to be rid of, to be parted from as if by the intervention of death. You were made to die. You died. The old man died. The old nature died when God made you alive with Christ. Remember, because of your, your being united with Christ, you're no longer under the dominion of sin. Because you've been united with Christ, the old self is dead and you're no longer obligated to the law in the sense in which you were previously. He says back in chapter 6, remember these words. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Listen to these words, into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness, in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to it. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is the very same principles that he's already discussed with us. You were made to die. You were made to die to your old self. The old self, which was the enemy of God, is gone. The old self that was a slave of sin is gone. Remember this, that you are not, you are not one person with two natures. You don't have a sinful nature and then a nature that is patterned after the spirit of God. You have one. The old man died when you were born again. We still, as the confessions talk about, we still contend with the rudiments of the old man. Rears its ugly head at times. But the work that God has done in, in us is that the old self has been crucified with him. The old self is dead. And that's where he talks about you've been made alive. You've been made alive together with Christ. Though we were slaves of sin, now having received the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, which he said back in chapter three, the old self is dead. And Christ is the one who purchased this redemption. He says that you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. This is this is the basis on which this has occurred. You were made to die. This was done to you. Very similar similar language as what he says before. You were enslaved to sin. Now you've been enslaved to righteousness. These were things that were done to you. This is the same principle here. You died to the law and it was because the Lord Jesus. Through his redemption. His redemption paid for you to die to yourself and to live unto him. To walk in the newness of life. This was a sovereign work of grace that by his life and by his death, by his resurrection, by his continued work as our mediator, etc., etc., that you have died to your old self. You've died to the obligation of the law. You've died to the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. The law is no longer a means to condemn you. 
Because through the body of Christ, you have been justified. So anticipating those questions, what was the reasoning? Why we were free from the bondage of sin? He's really answering a lot of those as we, as we work along here. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. <clears throat> you were made to be dead to your old self, the natural self, the enemy of God. You've been raised in the newness of life by the circumcision of the heart, by the spirit. He has taken out your heart of stone, given you a heart of flesh. He's caused you to be born again. All that kind of language that we read of in the New Testament. You have a new mind, a new will, new emotions, desires that are after the, the very righteousness of God, etc. This was a work that was done by God. You were made to die to the old spouse, you could say, in Adam. But in Christ, you are joined to him. You died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. And he identifies the one that's being spoken of here to him who was raised from the dead. You've been joined to Christ. You've been made to be the bride of Christ. We have been united with him. We shall live with him. All of that language that's being used throughout this book. Something had to change. You had to die to your old self. And then something else happened. It wasn't that you just died to yourself and now you've been raised. You've been raised for a purpose. You've been raised for something else. And that is to be joined to Christ. To be made the spouse of another, which is him. We are called the bride of Christ. J.V. Fesco, he says, When a believer is in Adam, he is subject to the law's obligation and condemnation on two counts. Adam's sin and his own personal sin. But once he is united to Christ and declared righteous, the law no longer has any claim on him because his sins are forgiven. The perfect law keeping of Christ and his all sufficient death and suffering and suffering the penalty for the broken law have been imputed by faith alone. So you've been joined to him. He has paid it all. He's done all that was necessary. And as the one writer had said, as long as a person is alive, as long as he is in Adam, he is married to the law. But being made alive in Christ, being joined to him, now we are the bride of Christ. And now we bear fruit for God. Being joined to Christ, living with Christ. He's used a number of different statements there to describe that. We bear fruit for God. We bear holiness. He says earlier or in the latter part of chapter 6, you receive your your benefit, which is sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, growing in holiness. This is the benefit that you have received. It wasn't on account of trying to strive to keep the law. The holiness that has been given to you that you now walk in, that you now seek after, has been because of Christ and the new, the new birth. You know what the law does whenever we continually strive to keep it? It doesn't bring assurance. It doesn't bring us any peace. It brings turmoil. It brings stress because there's never enough that we can do. There's always the realization that no matter what we do, we can never keep the law of God. But all that changes when 
you rest in Christ. Whereas you had fear and anxiety and stress, now there is true peace. There is a calmness of spirit, recognizing that he is the one who done it, and that the holiness now that is being brought about within your life is due to the Spirit of God changing you, changing your mind, changing your affections, moving your will to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. This was all done to you. His doing. Not because you're trying to earn your favor with God by keeping the law yourself. And that's what he's trying to take the legalistic readers perhaps and saying, look, you're, you, you still don't get it. You're still striving here to earn favor with God and you can't do it. But look here, the holiness that you desire is, is yours to have because God has wrought it in you by the Spirit of God. It is yours. The sanctifying work of trying to suppress the, the flesh, suppress the wickedness, suppress the temptations, all of this that we struggle with. Christ has accomplished it all. The Spirit in you, as a result of His work, the Spirit has been sent to you to change you, to change your desires, to enable you to do these things yourself. The law, trying to keep it, brings pain and disappointment. One writer says, to be dead to the law does not mean that we lead lawless lives. It simply means that the motivation and dynamic of our lives does not come from the law. It comes from God's grace through our union with Christ. It's a very, very good statement. Because if Paul's readers are also trying to figure out, well, if we're not going to hammer on the law here, then what is it that keeps a person from living a licentious life? And that's what he keeps going after. It's the Spirit of God in you, bringing these things about in you. Not by your striving after the law. Not by you trying to earn anything before God. But knowing the grace of God that is in Christ, knowing the peace that is there and the mercy and the great love of God is what motivates us to live for the Lord. You know, and that's true of anything. I mean, just think of it in this way. You know, I've worked for people that, that the way that they believed that they could motivate their employees was to constantly demean them. Here's what you did. Here's what you should have done. And there's nothing but demeaning them and criticizing them. And they think to themselves, this is going to help them to do better. Had one guy that I knew, his boss had came in there and told him, if you don't meet this particular um, goal when it comes to your sales, we're probably going to have to let you go. Knowing that he can't do it, it was not as if that was even a feasible thing. But he thought by telling him this, this was going to motivate him to go out and try harder. That doesn't work in anything. Encouragement 
is what works. Showing grace. Showing love. That's one reason why, for me, I, I, I can say this, I appreciate my boss. Because when you do mess up, or he needs other things that are done more than what you're doing at the moment, he comes to you and he encourages you. Hey, you know, we're doing really good here, but there's still some other things that we need to try to do. So if you could, try to work towards that. Yeah, I can do that. Sure. When you're trying to keep the law, and the law, all it's doing is pounding you continually, demeaning you continually, criticizing you continually because you can't do it. But through the Spirit of God changing your heart, bringing you to the realization of who God is, and you see the grace of God and the mercy of God and the great love that God has for you, and while we were still helpless and while we were still sinners that Christ died for us, these are the things that motivate us in order to live for the Lord. It's not out of a fear like a, like a, like a tyrant. It's out of a, a reverential fear that, yes, I deserve this, and yes, he could have done it at any time, but he has shown grace to me, and I want to show him how much that I love him. How much I am grateful to him. And so it's through the spirit of God and changing us that motivates us then to do the things that are good and right in the sight of God. And that's for anything in life. Knowing the grace of God. And the mercy and love and all of that. Those things keep us from living a life of licentiousness. Speaking of the life that we once had, he goes on to, to really give us that, that whole contrast. If you doubt that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and you think that you have to do these other things because you think you have to keep the requirements of the law, Paul says, just stop for a minute. I want you to think of this. I want you to consider the response to the law that you had in your unregenerate state. And so he says in verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, in our unregenerate state, the sinful passions, and these are those sinful emotions and lusts and desires, uh, the, the evil and the greed and, and the covetousness, all of that, these sinful passions which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So he says, if you, if you need a little bit more, let me remind you of this. This was your reaction and response to the law of God beforehand while you were in your unregenerate state. The sinful passions were not confined by the law of God. They were not suppressed by the law of God. They were aroused by the law of God. What does he mean by that? Well, as Dr. Lawson had pointed out, basically it's this, that every time the Lord says, you shall not, your sinful side was saying, yes, I will. The more you tell me I can't, the more I'm going to. And that's what it is, that the law is what is, is stirring 
these sinful passions even more because we're at enmity with God. And when you're at enmity with God, you don't, you don't submit to the law of God. And actually, Paul's going to go on to say in chapter 8 that those that are in the flesh cannot subject themselves to the law of God. They're not even able to do so. So he is reminding them of, of their pre-conversion to, to understand, look, you're worried. You're still worried. Think about your delight in the law now. Think about how you were before. The contrast there, before, I hated the law of God. He says, you shall, watch me. I will. This evil that was in our hearts and this wickedness. The sinful passions were at work in our members and all parts of our the entirety of who we were, the entirety of who we were expressed these desires and this lust and this anger and this hatred and the ill will and the jealousy and, and all of that. The entirety of who we were, our minds, hearts, and wills. Our fruit was corrupt and the harvest that we would have reaped was judgment. And we wanted our harvest to be corrupt. If you think about now, as Paul is calling his audience to remember this, when you hear these words now, you shall not. This command from the Lord. What is it that you think now? When the Lord says, you shall not do this. You are not permitted to do this. Our hearts now say, yes, Lord, by your grace, Keep me from stumbling in that way. Or does your heart still say, could be fun. I think I will. And again, if you just begin to think and consider the differences of your pre-conversion to now, this is what Paul is bringing out. Just think of how you used to Consider things and consider the law of God. By your grace, O oh Lord, keep me from stumbling in this way. That's the response of the children of God. When God says, you shall not. Then help me, O oh Lord. Well, those are the things that we, that we call out to the Lord when we understand that, especially in areas in which we struggle. Lord, I know that this is not right and I'm not going to freely indulge in it because it's offensive to you. Well, Lord, keep me. Keep me close and keep me from stumbling. Is that how you think now? Are you ashamed of the things that you once did and even ashamed, ashamed of the things in which we still fall into now? What brings that on? What causes that? It didn't bother us before. Why does it bother us now? It goes back to this reality. For the child of God, you have received the circumcision of the heart. Not by the letter, but by the Spirit of God. And you have been changed and transformed. And that in and of itself is, is evidence to us. It's, it's, it's part of that to say, God is at work in me. 
And if God is at work in me, then I know that I'm His. My hope, my assurance is all in Christ and everything that He did, and I believe that with my whole heart. That's my justification. And I can be assured of my sanctification because I see God is already at work in me. Now, dealing with your post-conversion, he says, in light of that, this is how things were before. The sinful passions were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, but now we have been released from the law. This is, again, something that has occurred to you, having died to that by which we were bound. It's no longer, uh, we're no longer under its condemnation. Under its curse, we have died to it and we now serve in the newness of the Spirit, as he says. We serve, he says. That means we obey, we submit, we perform our service to God in the newness of the Spirit. And that newness of the Spirit, what's he referring to? That new state of life that we now experience having the new heart. This is one of the wonderful things about the new covenant itself that is the promise of God to those who enter into the new covenant. Whereas before, by the letter of the law, you have the, the law written on the tablets. And now the great promise of the new covenant is something very different. In Hebrews chapter 8, here's what he says in the beginning of verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, there, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The covenant that he had originally made, of course, with them, the Mosaic covenant, what we understand as part of the covenant of grace and all of that, what occurred? They continually forsook him. They continually turned away. Yet they are the covenant people of God. But something is different. And it is such a contrast as far as the difference of the two that the writer of Hebrews is contrasting them. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says, says the Lord. This is under the old covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So here's the blessing of the new covenant. The blessing of the new covenant is that God writes his law on your heart. This is what the Spirit does. When you read in Ezekiel chapter 36, and he begins to talk about what is getting ready to occur, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will take out your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and so you shall observe them. How can he make such a promise there, when 
it didn't occur beforehand. Because there is a stark contrast between that covenant and the new covenant that Christ brings about. Which is, he writes his law on your hearts. It's not just written generally on the mind to give you a conscience as it is for even the Gentiles. It's written on your heart, in your mind, on your heart. You desire to do it now. There is no situation in the new covenant as there was in the old in which people would turn away. Even though they were the covenant people of God, they would turn away. This doesn't happen under the new covenant. Because the promise is, he writes his law on your heart, on your mind. How do you know that you're part of the new covenant? For the very things that he's been saying here. The law of God aroused your sinful passions before, but now you obey from the heart because of this new state of life in which you have entered. So that you serve God, you obey God, you submit to Him, you perform your service to Him because of the newness of life that the Spirit has brought about and not in the oldness of the letter. The Spirit causes us to desire to keep the statutes of God not as a means to gain favor with God, but as a means to live before God, recognizing that this here is pleasing to God, and that's why I want to do it. You've been made to be dead to the obligation of the law as it was before, no longer under its curse, no longer under its obligation as it was but prior to, but now the law serves a great purpose in your life still because now it is our guide to walk us through life. It is our guide now to know how to please the God because Paul goes on to say the law is good and the law is holy and we establish the law in all this kind of language. As you're being conformed to the image of Christ and Richard had brought this up on a Wednesday night. When you think about the work of Christ... Christ actively fulfilled the law of God to its perfection, right? It's that righteousness, that perfection that is imputed to you through faith. And if this is what Christ had done, being conformed to the, the law, fulfilling the law, and we're being conformed to his image, that means that we're being conformed to the law. And we desire to do the things of the law now. And this is what Paul is saying, look, the holiness that you desire, it doesn't come from trying to gain favor with God in this manner. It comes only through Christ and him granting the spirit to you and producing these things in your life. And you can tell and understand that God is doing a work in you simply by just reflecting upon how things were before in your life and your views on things now and your view on the law of God now. Dear Christian, you can't keep striving for, for something that you will never achieve. You cannot keep trying to do the things of the law or to come up with another standard to make yourself feel more holy and that God is more pleased because today he's more pleased with me because I, I checked off my boxes and I actually did what I was supposed to do and I know God is pleased with me. And then the next day something happens and then I fall into sin or I stumble. God is not pleased with me anymore. Now I got to do it all over again so I gain his favor. That is, that is, that is not the peace of God. That anxiousness, that stress, do you realize that God is going to love you no more later than what he does right now? 
Do you know that? God's love for you isn't going to grow. He loves you with an infinite love right now. Even when you're checking off your box or even when you stumble. His love for you does not diminish one bit. So when you're thinking of what things that you can do in your life in order to produce holiness or to help you, help you to suppress sin or whatever the means that you need to do in order to keep yourself from stumbling or try to by the grace of God. Just remember, you're doing these things not to earn favor with God. You're doing these things because you recognize that sin is offensive to God. And, oh, Lord, I want to please you. So help me. Help me to do right. Let my life be magnifying of Christ. Help me to glorify your name. Because my heart's desire is to do that. Because you've been so gracious to me. You've been so wonderful to me. You have shown me such mercy when I deserve nothing less than your judgment. And so how can I show you that I love you? Oh, Lord, help me. Help me to do what's right in your eyes. And if there are things that you can do throughout your daily life that are going to assist you in this, then that's wonderful. You know, you take Jonathan Edwards and his 70 resolutions every day reading over those 70. And you think to yourself, this is a dude in his early 20s when he penned this thing. That's wow. Whenever I have a it basically says in one of them, whenever I have a bad day, I think of the pains of hell. And then when I think the pains of hell, I'm not really having a bad day. We should pray like Jonathan Edwards, though. Oh, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Let me, let me see everything in view of eternity. That's a good prayer. Your peace, dear Christian, is knowing that he paid it all. He done it all. He's completing it all. And there is nothing more that you can do to contribute to your salvation. Not one degree. Nothing. Will he be more pleased with me if I read my Bible? Nothing. Will he be more pleased with me if I don't commit that particular sin that I'm struggling with? Nothing. You need to allow this to sink into your minds. There is nothing more to do. Stop striving. Stop striving to earn favor with God in this way. We still strive to, to do what's right with all of our energy as the Spirit brings that in us. Yes, that's good. But if you're striving to earn favor with God and you're going to do it on your own merit and on your own performance, you're never going to have it, dear friends. What does Jesus say? Come to me and I will give you rest. Why is it he can give you rest? Because he's done it all. And there's nothing more to do. So when you think if, if God is going to be more pleased with you because you do this or you do that, no. He's pleased with you because of his son. Is God going to love me more if I do this or I do that? No. God loves you on account of his son. And he loves you with the same degree of love that he loves his son. Already. In full. Is, is God going to be, is God going to be, we can come up with a number of different things. Dear Christian, rest in Christ. 
rest in his work. Rest in the work that he is doing in you and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The things that he does on the inside, you manifest it on the outside. The new desires that you have, you're manifesting it on the outside because, yes, God is pleased. Uh, he's pleased to work in me and to change me and to, to bring me out from where I was. And he's pleased to do this work by the Spirit. And there is such a joy when you see God at work in you and not trying to come up with it your own. What have we been talking about? You cannot sanctify yourself. It's God who does this work in you. So rest in him. Rest that he will bring it to completion. And, and know without question that he loves you with the fullest, infinite degree of love already. And it will not grow no more because you have it all right now. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us, that it encourages our hearts once again, Lord, to, to stop striving to please you when it is impossible for us to do so in our own, in our own merit, in our own power. Help us, Lord, to rest in Christ. Help us to rest in his work, to rest in, in the work that the Spirit of God is doing in us. Father, to comfort our hearts, to recognize that you have worked in us. For the things that we once did, we are now ashamed. For the lawlessness that we once delighted in, Father, we are now ashamed and we seek to do those things that are good and right. Those desires did not come about in our own on our own. Father, they are manifested in us because of the work that you have done and are doing. Help us to rest in you, to be assured in you, in your work, in the work of Christ, not in our own. Father, give strength to us every day. Watch over us, keep us close, keep us from stumbling. But let us always remember that in the time in which we do, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. Father, we love you. We don't love you as we should. We love you with an imperfect love, but we thank you for the Spirit of God who is in us, who perfects our love to you, and who perfects our prayers, who perfects our worship and our praise our thanks. He perfects it. And thank you that one day we will do this perfectly when we are made complete in Christ and brought home. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.